All right, folks, we have a very special episode here because I have my good friend, Mr. Jeff Pierce, on the phone. Um, for those of you who don't know, Jeff uh, works with Brooks Kepka among a bunch of other tour players. This seems like a fitting interview because Jeff obviously uh, just had a great experience with Brooks at the Masters. Uh, there's obviously a lot of live controversy in regards to majors, which we're going to talk about. And Jeff is one of the few coaches on tour who works with players on both sides. So he not only has experience and incentive with regards to the PGA Tour, he also has it on the live side. So uh, first of all, uh, dude, what's going on? How you been? And uh, how's uh, how's drama life? <laughs> uh, good to talk to you again. Uh, I know we, we stay in contact through text, uh, not as regularly as we would both like, but I know you are like the premium instructor in the northern part of North America and across the world with all your online success. Um, I appreciate you work that. way harder. You work way harder than me. That's for sure. <laughs> I mean, I, uh, I don't know if I work harder. I'm definitely probably busier than you on random hours of the that, day. Yeah, I, yeah t- time is effort as far as I'm concerned. So you, you've got me tenfold on that one. Uh, <laughs> everything everything else is good, man. Uh, just just kind of transitioning from uh, Florida. You know, I spend probably a solid seven months a year down there and uh in the car now kind of making my trip north uh go back up to north carolina for the summer uh teach out of there when i'm when i'm not on the road travel with these guys so uh appreciate uh the phone call and helping me kill some time staring at my windshield here so <laughs> <laughs> it's a mutu- it's a mutually beneficial conversation let's put it that way <laughs> always um, yeah. So, okay. So I guess we can jump right into the masters just cause it's pretty recent and I'm sure a lot of people want to know, um, I guess first impressions on like how that week played out. Um, obviously there's a lot of drama based on like how fucking slow the final round was and guys sitting down and going in the bathroom, I don't know, fucking 12 times or whatever it was. So, um, you know, first of all, was Brooks playing really well going into the week? Were you expecting him to have a good week? I know you never really know at the end of the day, but like, was he firing on all cylinders leading up to the event? Yeah, I mean, for for people that don't follow Live uh, and the tour, obviously, uh, which is, I think that population's growing. That more and more people are are seeing both of them. But uh, he actually won the Orlando Live event uh, the week before. So I mean, he he won on Sunday, uh, hopped on the jet, flew from Orlando to Augusta, and then started the week again. So um, you know, he was he kind of put some pieces together. He'd been playing nicely practicing nicely for a little while and just couldn't quite get it together in tournaments so i think i think the team around him we all had the same conversation even before he won in orlando and it was you know we got asked the question how's he looking for the you know for the masters and we we're all like well and he's doing everything nicely he hasn't played great yet we're not thinking that he's going to go win it but we really wouldn't be surprised if he played really well so and then he wins in Orlando and it's like, OK, he's putting pieces together. So for the guys that have been around him closely for you know the weeks leading up, um, like you said, it's hard to ever predict. But we weren't surprised he played well, uh, especially after the win in Orlando. It was it's just honestly nice to see him healthy. It's been the biggest change over the last probably six or seven months, um, able to do what he what he does. Uh, him healthy is a is a dangerous thing for other golfers. So that's that's finally where we're at again. Yeah, that's uh, that's awesome. I mean, clearly when he's healthy, he's able to perform at the highest level still. So I know a lot of people, I guess internally, like being part of his circle, how do you think his perception changed since the Netflix doc came out? Because obviously, like, you know, he has that episode where 
He's a little bit more open and vulnerable than people typically are used to experiencing. Um, how much of that you think was for the show? How much of that is, I mean, I'm assuming a lot of it was very much him, but at the same time, did any of that surprise you? Did you watch the show? I mean, I didn't watch anything I, if I'm being honest, but I, I was there while they were, I was there while they were filming all of it. So that oh, was even, filmed, even, uh, even better. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so, I mean, they were in the houses a lot. They were at events and, and I'm pretty much with him, uh, every week in the United States. Um, I'm, I'm there every week. So they were in the houses. They filmed, uh, I think some of that was in Scottsdale. Some of it was at Augusta. Honestly, the, the bad part about that was Netflix obviously has their creativity uh, leeway. They can do whatever they want. So much of that was out of context and incomplete, mm-hmm. um, w- which is a shame because he did sort of open up. They just cut some sentences off and bounced back and forth to frame multiple conversations into one that were certainly not the narrative. That, so too, I was too, I was too much creative to control. See. Yeah, too much creative yes. control to like give a give a different scenario than what he was trying yeah. to do. Basically, for, for for example, I think, and this is the uh, the feedback I got from a lot of people that watched that. Um, you know, they're talking about Augusta, and they they've got a conversation going about him trying to get healthy, and and then they cut back to Scottsdale. Uh, and they use half of a sentence and basically him saying like, you know, I just don't know if I can compete with these guys day in and a day out. The rest of that sentence was unless I'm healthy. I don't, I don't believe that that aired. And it was also from uh, a couple months before Augusta. So they did a really poor job in my opinion of, uh, sort of being intellectually honest with, with what they had. But I also understand it's for entertainment. And you know, I mean, it, let's, it be, is let's be real. Is. Adding the "unless I'm healthy" is like a massive part of that. Kind, of that kind sentence. of kind of a big piece. Kind of a big piece. Uh, I mean, this is not they, a, this is not a guy was, lacking confidence. This is a guy who's saying like, if my body can't keep up, what the fuck do you want me to do? Basically, yeah. Like if if I can't swing a golf club, of course I can't play with the best in the world. I don't think I don't, there's nobody that that disagrees with that statement. Insert whatever your favorite player is. Uh, that that would apply. So again, they're they're uh, they're prerogative to to paint things the way they wanted. But having been there for probably over ninety percent of the filming of the entire episode of his, um, I was disappointed with the intellectual honesty that they showed. Well, I'm, I mean, I'm assuming you guys have spoken about it, even if briefly. Like, did he come to you and be like, "Yo, what the fuck did I just watch?" Kind of thing. It's, I, I won't share too much, but I, I think yeah. uh, some of his team is following up with with Netflix regarding some of that. So I won't. Right. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. 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 We'll yeah. we'll leave it. We'll Dis- leave it there. Disappointed we'll keep- would be disappointed would be the the nice way to put that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So moving moving aside from from the the Netflix talk. Um, I guess the first thing I want to mention is again like the slow play fact of of the final round. Do you think slow play is a problem? Do you think there are anything we can do differently to try to combat it? I mean, it's a little ridiculous when you hear some of the best players in the world saying they have to take nine bathroom breaks in one round of golf to, because they're waiting so much. Yeah, there there was some interesting stuff I think in that in that final round at Augusta. Obviously, uh, uh, there's a couple guys that were in the next to last group, notorious for some slow play. I think they added it up, and there was something like a total of. 67 minutes of waiting on tee boxes that uh, Brooks and and uh, John had to do in the final round, which is kind of absurd. Uh, and then we can we can name them, I don't know, but Patrick Cantlay being one of them. And then there was I found it on uh, Instagram, which is the only social media that I uh, 
that I use. The scene for those of us that remember the old Happy Gilmore movie, where basically in Happy's first uh, tournament, he's a terrible putter, obviously, and it takes, I forget, it was like a minute and change for him to putt out on the first hole, and that was shorter than the amount of time that it took Patrick Cantlay to hit one of his tee shots after he'd addressed it in Hilton Head. So, I mean, we, we definitely have a problem with some guys out there being unbelievably slow. Uh, and I think we can probably pin that on a couple of specific players. And I just don't think there's a lot being done about it. Um, I think it pisses a lot of guys off uh, from time to time when they get put in that position. But, you know, I, I guess it kind of is what it is, too. I mean, speaking of Brooks and John both, like, it, inconvenient, but not necessarily a big deal. Uh, right uh, on their on the personal side, but for the game, yeah, it kind of sucks watching watching paint dry uh, with some of those players out there. Would you would you would you say that part of the problem is more so the tour not fucking doing anything? Because if like if and Patrick obviously is one of many, but he's the obvious one because he's the one who is in the spotlight. But like, if you're gonna take your sweet fucking time every hole and no one's gonna say anything, you have no incentive to stop doing it. You know? Correct. Correct. Yeah. I mean, they'll they'll put out you know some private fines for some guys that will do that. But we're talking on the scale of what's going on, you know, nominal amounts of money. And then yeah, the, the biggest thing, if they want to stop it, they just start stroking the guys. Like, cause, cause then you get into their money and it's a public embarrassment and the, and they'll pick it up. Like it's, uh, look, junior golf. Now you, you look at the AJGA stuff, you, you know, they are on top of this. You, you get these kids coming out here. Now they're used to, you know, they, the whole group gets popped if there's a delay, right? They've got times. They've got to be at their checkpoints on certain times or they're on the clock. Like, the kids are learning to play this thing fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think junior golf and college golf is pushing them pretty hard. Uh, also, don't you think but, it's a little embarrassing that, like, junior and college golf have a better grasp on this than the fucking professional side? Uh, I Well, I mean, I'm sure we'll get into some of it. I think the professional side is missing the boat on a lot of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I, yeah. I think, yeah, so it's it's just, you can put it in the bucket of, you know, mismanaged or undermanaged or undercared about things. Mm-hmm. Um, it sucks for the spectators. I mean, that's awful to stand there and literally watch Patrick on the tee box for a minute, address his golf ball with a driver in his hands. And he hasn't, and he hasn't hit the golf ball yet. Right. I mean, it's, uh, you know, uh, I don't have the answer to it other than look, man, if you're holding the, if, if the group behind you has waited collectively over an hour in a round of golf on tee box for you and you didn't get penalized, uh, you know, uh, then we're not, then we're not actively enforcing the rules of golf. We're select, we're selectively enforcing rules of golf. Right, 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 right. Okay. Let's get away from any sort of drama there. I guess the only other question I want to ask, and then we're going to get into like the actual technical stuff. Cause I want to, you know, have listeners obviously learn from you and how good you are with your your side of coaching, but uh, I guess what are some common mis- misconceptions you think people have or that you experienced about the live tour uh, in relation to the PGA tour and how maybe that's changed over the last couple of months, especially with like, you know, three guys go to the live finish top five at the masters. There's the whole official world golf ranking debate. Like do you have an opinion on that. Do you not give a shit? Like where yeah. are you at? Well, it, it's yes and no. Um, it, it's, I think Augusta was good. Uh, for golf in the sense that two of the largest narratives that the media has, has tried to push uh, falsely. Again, I, we can have a whole another conversation about our trust in media, their intellectual honesty. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the, the big narratives that they were pushing were the live guys couldn't compete anymore and that there was beef between PJ Tour players and live players. I think Augusta pretty much ended that. Uh, it should have anybody paying attention. Um, you know, the, the guys on live, they're going to play. If they're in the majors, they're going to play 20 to 21 events or 22 events a year. That's what we were playing as our, at Brooks' team before the live events. So we're playing just as much golf, um, condensed in the middle. <clears throat> so we're actually very, you know, playing a lot of golf in the summer. Um, we're playing against the best players in the world. It's diluted. There's some of them on live and there's some of them on the PJ tour. Now segue that into the world ranking conversation that if, if that entity's job is to accurately rank the best golfers on the planet, I think objectively we could all agree that it's a flawed system at this point. Mm -hmm. Um, we, we proved that, um, a couple of guys that finished top five are not 150th in the world. Gross Kepka is not 150th in the world. <laughs> yeah, I hear you on that. I mean, I almost, right. um, you have to wonder if like they're purposely delaying giving them more ranking points till they get so far outside of the top 100 that their strength of field becomes terrible and it's like almost useless. Yeah, it, it, who knows? Look, they, uh, there's absolutely, I know firsthand, I've had conversations with the people involved. Uh, there's absolutely political games being played. Uh, I'll say this mostly from the PGA Tour side. I understand their position of they feel threatened because something else popped up. There's animosity between Norman and Monaghan. I understand all the BS. But the political side of that, there's only one person that loses, and that's that's the fan and the golfers, right? Mm-hmm. The, both of these entities have so much money, and the PGA Tour magically found millions and millions of dollars, right? So we can all we all understand live and run out of cash ever. The PGA Tour is a nonprofit, has more cash reserves than they're, they're willing to talk about. So it's not that there's financial issue. It's a political game, which, which right. I get, whatever. But it, to the simpler part of the question, if because official World Golf Ranking is a different entity. Who Monaghan had some seats on the board, so did European Tour. They've since recused themselves from that board because of some of the legal action coming. Okay, So the official World Golf Ranking is an independent company. They should, and this is why European Tour and PGA Tour recuse themselves from the board because of the legal action. If their single job is to rank the best golfers in the world, then I don't understand what the timeline's about. They they are not accurately doing that. I think everybody understands it now. Yeah, I agree with you on that. I also, um, you know, I always I find it so funny when you see other coaches like colleagues of ours that go on on public record and are like oh fuck the live tour and this and that you're telling me that if one of the best players in the world who happens to be on the live came to you and asked you for help you wouldn't work with him on his fucking game of course they would i mean look look and the caddies look there was uh i'll name him because he's because he deserves it for this uh bones tried to get a group of the caddies together the players saying that if a caddy is caddied on live they should get together and ban them from ever caddying on the pga tour again that's the biggest bullshit the thing thing that's ever come out of somebody's mouth ever, right? That, right. I mean, that's that's just that's stupid. We're and Bones and Bones is doing this to the guy who fucking basically made his living for thirty years. Like what? Right. Yeah. So, so again, all the political BS. I hate it. I stand back from it. We're watching a soap opera because people's emotions are involved, which I I generally try not to have those. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it, just I'm watching grown ups act 
like kindergartners because somebody feels like somebody took some of their toys and are playing with them in a different side of the room. Like if they want to make the argument it's about golf, right? Then let's understand that there's space for a lot of great golf. Liv's coming around. You got great golf being played out there. You got great golf being played on the PGA Tour. Like let's all get over our individual selves. And look at this and go, it's great golf. Look, and the PGA Tour is playing dirty games and trying to get some of these guys to come back. It's nonsense. When you actually have firsthand knowledge from both sides of the fence, it's a joke. It's it's honestly embarrassing what's going on behind the scenes. But the the average the average golf viewer or golf fan has no idea. They just get to they get to see what the media decides to give them, which again is uh seriously misinformed or at least underinformed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I find it. I find it's very interesting. I mean, look, I get like the whole Saudi situation, and people will have their strong opinions on it. But if the if objectively speaking, we can come to the agreement that Liv isn't going anywhere, at what point do we start to change our tone about everything, right? And just like yeah. kind of, you know, one person is not going to change anything. And the reality is, if a fucking good player came to any one of us as coaches, we would take that job in a heartbeat because yeah. they're paying yeah. us a lot of money, and who doesn't like money? Like- well, and, I'll, and I'll say this because the players get pressed on this all the time, and I, I think I think they've got to be a little more careful about answering that question when they get asked about, uh, you know, are you comfortable with where the money from this comes from? Let, let's understand that that fund in that country is an active trading partner of the United States government. And that particular fund is invested in almost every. First of all, you wouldn't company. you you wouldn't have the ladies European tour at all if it wasn't for this. They, they actually, when you when you break down the money invested, the 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 ladies in America, they're they're the number one sponsor too. So if they're an active, agreed upon trading partner of our government, and they and they're funding our companies privately and publicly in America. And then it's intellectually dishonest for the media to have a problem with asking a golfer if they're upset with where the money comes from, and they're not going to go to their government and be upset with the trading. Yeah, I mean, so I saw, I, I saw, I remember. I mean, dude, I remember. Yeah, we'll end it with one last thing, but I almost remember seeing a chart where it's like all the investment money that was coming in. And you're like, dude, they're literally everywhere. They're like, yeah, in every. I'm, if I'm pretty ever sure been this in an Uber. The sport, the sport of F one, the sport of F one, literally would not exist if it wasn't for that either. You know, like there's so much that people don't realize is behind the scenes here. Yeah, so it's in in. in, I think the players can't answer that honestly when they would. They'd have to look at one of the people in the media and go, "You're being intellectually dishonest. You're you're a terrible journalist if you're going to press me on this, but you're not, and and you're not going to press other entities on this. They are a preferred trading partner with the United States government." Until the until the U.S. says they're not a partner of ours, I don't understand what the problem is. Okay, okay, we're gonna end it there because we can get super heated and talk about this. I feel like <laughs> for like three hours. I'm gonna need a, I'm gonna need a glass of bourbon after this one. Um, okay, let's dive into some uh, some short game chat because a lot of people want to learn from you. You literally work with some of the best players in the world, and you are extremely knowledgeable with the short game. So the I guess uh, we'll start with some soft, soft, softballs here, and then we'll kind of lead into more complex ones. But what do you? Um, I know you. I can't imagine you're working with that many recreational golfers anymore, like straight up weekend hacks. But back in the times when you used to spend a lot of time with them, what do you feel as though was the common mistakes that they would make around the greens? Like, is it poor misconceptions about stuff? Are they trying to do things incorrectly? Like, what would you use to experience? I'd say for that golfer, it's it's sort of a mixed bag. Uh, and I, you know, I, I'm trying to think. Uh, a, a year and change ago, when I left uh, Old Stone in Kentucky, I was I was doing a 
still doing a decent amount of it. And this summer when I'm in uh, North Carolina, the club Linville Ridge Golf Club uh, up in uh, near Banner Elk, I'll, I'll see member golfers there as well. So I still, I still do a, a little bit of that and, and help mm-hmm. those guys out because they're, they're sort of like layups. It's, it's the same as you. When you get, you know, a 15 handicapper that comes in that's slicing at 40 yards. You're like, like, I can do the, I can do this easy. shit in my sleep basically. Yeah. It's pretty easy to make a substantial difference quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it's kind of refreshing, but what I'd say is that there's, there's more misconception, uh, um, on what they're trying to do. And then the ones that do have good, maybe ideas or, or good framework, their application is maybe is not, uh, you know, the real world versus what they think they're, they're doing isn't, uh, matching up, but some of the stuff I see, uh, and it can go across the board from great golfer to, to recreational golfer is, is conceptually, there's some stuff that flew, floated around a couple of years ago and over the, in the last little bit, that was in vogue, like how shallow you've got to be to be a good wedge player and did high soft shots. And I think as we look back on that, um, sort of handing that to an amateur golfer unchecked probably hurt them more than it helped them. And then I've seen, I've seen more guys on the tour that have struggled, like seriously struggled, um, uh, in an effort to be quote unquote more shallow. Um, so I I think in short game as a whole, there's some incomplete statements. I would, I would probably say out there that, uh, that don't get chewed through enough. And there's a lot of, and I mean, you go online, right? You go on YouTube, you go on, you know, there's a, there's becoming more and more popular that instructors are creating, uh, pages and, and things for their instruction and not to their fault, but when you're just sort of able to give clips, and you know two minute videos or things like that i think a lot of golfers maybe take some of those things and run with them a little too far or or maybe they don't apply to that golfer and uh they maybe try to apply it and then work around some mismatches so i think you're always going to have some of that with the club golfer that's seeking to get better as you know there's a lot of information out there in a lot of different places that we won't call it incorrect, but it might not be the right medicine for that player. So I think you, I, I, I think you said it best. It's it's not about the information being incorrect in many cases. It's that it's just lacking. There's not enough context or specific detail to actually give them a proper line of where they're trying to go with it. Yeah, and, and I I would say that's what I see more often in the in the club golfer is like I I'll actually say that I think the stuff I see online that comes through social media or stuff that people will send me. Um, has has gotten way better, like for sure, exponentially better in the last few years because the information is available uh, for more instructors to learn and measure and and kind of play with this stuff. But it's yeah, I, I had a doctor tell me this years years ago, and like the the Med MD was online. You're like, look, if you go in online, you put all your symptoms in and ask them what you've got, it's pretty accurate. The problem is you don't know all your symptoms. Right. So it's like, that's the golfer going online going, man, I'm like, I'm thinning or I'm duffing my chips. Like I'm going to go online and, and get some help. It's like, yeah, if you knew everything going on in sort of your, your box to puzzle pieces, um, then you seek answers out alone. A lot of the times is what I would sort of say with your club golfer. 
it's almost like they're they're just opening a can of worms of like potential solutions without understanding where the root of wh- where these symptoms Absol- are coming from. Yeah, ab- absolutely, absolutely. Okay, um, I know we had spoken about this, and I I posted your response as a text if you remember on social media, and it, it fucking blew up, which was the idea of using multiple clubs around the greens versus one. Um, yeah, yeah, people love that. People loved it. People were chirping me nonstop. I was getting hate DMs for like six straight months. Uh, what? Uh, let, you want to just reiterate? Yeah, you want to reiterate what your answer was, and then maybe we'll dive into a little more detail on that. Yeah. So if we're if we're greenside, and let's let's oh, call that up. maybe thirty hold, yards in hold, it. Hold we'll up, Jeff. Just, I mean, just, yeah. Go ahead. No, I was going to say it just cut out for a second. You want to just repeat your? Oh, answer? I'm. I'm sorry. Yeah, if we put a soft line on this, like 30 yards and out, or sorry, 30 yards and in from the green, um, then we're going to see players on tour um, certainly be want to use one club as much as possible. And right. I would I would certainly at M as they can manipulate you know call it for ease of numbers if it's a 60 50 degrees to almost 70 degrees and they know how that wedge is going to perform they know what they're expecting out of it no problems um they're going to hit a lot more fancy stuff than your club golfer your club golfer I still like seeing them using a limited amount of clubs because they have a limited amount of time to practice with maybe, maybe figure out how one of them goes. Uh, so you get pretty good with it. Um, I think there's just been a lot of perpetuated thoughts of, Oh, I, I can have one stroke with a bunch of different clubs. Yeah. Or you could have one stroke with one club that you learn to manipulate the loft with. Uh, and then smash factors stay the same, spin rates change uh, predictably. So, you know, there can be different opinions on that, and that's fine. I just see the best golfers in the world, and including the best club golfers, gravitate towards one golf club and get pretty good with it. So, yeah, there's going to be plenty of people that have a different opinion about that. Um, and if they've got success with it, like rock and roll, but... Um, you don't see a lot of really successful, really, really successful wedgers uh, using five clubs. It just doesn't happen. I mean, I almost think it comes from a, a answer of self-doubt, really, where it's like, I can't make solid contact on this ball. Let me grab a seven iron and just put it on the green because it sounds like it makes sense. But you're taking the low percentage play that's giving you a worse result more often if you're actually skilled. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think you would have more success figuring out why you can't hit your wedge, solving that problem, and then you don't have to go to the the nine iron that's potentially a rocket ship that's a, yeah. extremely – yeah. I mean, the, and, and that was that's sort of where I – you know, completing that conversation or that thought, I don't like for any of my players, whether they're a professional golfer or a club golfer, um, to use for pitching and chipping – a club that is in their uh, their iron set. Like, even if it's like the gap wedge that matches it, or like you see some of these sets where, oh, yeah, they gave me a sand wedge with it too. Like, those are built to go fast. 
Mm-hmm. Like it's, all the, about, the, it's all about ball speed, and we don't want that around the greens. We don't want it. I, I, I need the opposite. And that's also where I, I think some less studied or educated people that want to argue the multiple clubs, even if, let's say, just say I got a set of Vokies, or your Callaway sponsor. I got a, I got a set of the new Jaws wedges or whatever the new thing is. <laughs> that's right, right baby. Um, Callaway, let's go. Yeah. There you go. Right. I'm, I'm here for the big guys. Um, <laughs> um, even if you go lob wedge, sand wedge, gap wedge, and then there's a lot of players that will even have what is technically a pitching wedge in that same set. Um, they are progressive in the, in where the center's gravity are in those club heads. So now not only am I just changing loft, if it were just a change of loft, I, I could be an advocate of using these multiple clubs and and doing whatever. Right. But it's not just a change of loft. It's a change of ball speed. It's a change of spin. It's a change of trajectory. That is a, more than a single variable change as I change that, that golf club. So I think that's one of the things people don't understand. If I'm really good with one of them and I understand that ball speed, I understand how that spin and that speed changes. I manipulate the club. I'm much more in tune with the shots uh, than it would be going from lob wedge to gap wedge, and those ball speeds being radically different, uh, even played at the same call it 52 degrees aloft. So that's sort of my whole point: is that you actually you actually reduce the amount of variables you're trying to deal with uh, if you'll just use and get familiar with one, you know, maybe two clubs. That that was sort of my whole. So it's like a combination of predictability plus you're reducing variables that basically are out of your hands that you will have no experience with if you're changing clubs back and forth. Right, and the word you just said, predictability, uh, is is what the game's about. Right, we right. we we make all decisions on probability. Like you won't you won't hear me talk to a single high level player uh, about decision making or club selection or shot selection based on a lie without hearing. Uh, predictability and probability so like the people like and i I can again i can lay out in a very scientific way the advantages versus disadvantages of someone being one club versus you know three or four clubs uh look if i got somebody that can't make contact with it yeah okay let's 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 get them to get it on the green but also that same technique that they're going to do well with their pitching wedge or nine iron there's zero reason they can't do that with the sandwich and give it a little mm-hmm. bit more speed. So, like, you can always circle that argument back into why are we not gravitating to one wedge and getting them comfortable with it? Also, I I completely disagree that just because you have one of those like fatter headed nine irons in your hands that you can't just blade that shit across the green anyways. Oh, I've, I've seen me do it. <laughs> <laughs> right. So it's like they they have this idea that oh I'm just gonna do this like putting stroke method with this with this super ripping ball speeded club but the truth is like you can hit that shit terribly too oh yeah yeah you can bounce into it you can duff it yeah so the solution isn't let's use a safe club like that doesn't really exist you might you might increase the par- probability of of contact but you didn't you didn't increase the probability of your ball getting closer to the hole. So and also like right. why are we taking why are we taking a lower ceiling for the future? Don't we want to get better and actually lower our handicap? Yeah. If they if they can make that stroke with a nine iron, they can make that stroke with a sand wedge. So right. like yeah, I'm gonna have a hard someone's gonna have to present a pretty good case before I'm gonna be like, Oh yeah, we should teach good golfers to chip with five clubs. Like, yeah, you're you're gonna your your work's cut out for you. You're you're coming in with a lot of facts and not just like, oh, but it feels weird. Like, okay, fine. Oh, well, I saw so and so be successful at that. Yeah, you'll never hear that (laughs) argument. 
Okay. 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 Next question. <laughs> One of the uh, other things I've been seeing a lot of conversations on lately online is the idea of like hitting draw bunker shots versus fade, like the whole old school aim left. Let's cut across it. Open face versus like, let's close it off and shallow the thing out. You just mentioned mm -hmm. high level golfers being a little too shallow. Do you experience that in the bunker too? And could you share some of your philosophies on what you've experienced with better players in the bunker? Yeah. Um, you're, you're always dealing with an individual player. Especially yeah, for sure. There's the definitely level, some subjectivity right? just to preface yeah. that for sure. Um, I've, I've got guys that I will, uh, I'll circle back to my, my, my personal preferences. I've got guys that as we train in the bunker that I will have them, uh, maybe favor the fade thought. And I've got some guys that it is absolutely necessary that they favor the the draw sort of technique. Now that uh, I, I'll put them in those boxes because we're generally fighting patterns that they have. Uh, I mean, the, in, the best the best way to explain working with pros for everybody who's listening is like you're just trying to neutralize an extreme somewhere. So yes. if there's too much extreme on one side, they might need to feel the other side. It's as simple as that. Yeah, yeah. So regardless regardless of which direction I'm trying to pull them from, my whole goal, and I think this is what. <clears throat> Again, in the last several years, people have started to figure out and get past the old, just perpetuated, lazy information. Is that I want the 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 true path of that club, the three D path of that club, to be relatively at the target, and I want the true loft of the club, the three D direction of the face, to be pretty much stacked up on that and pointed at pointed at the target as well. If we're dealing with a lot of side spin either way. We've, we've probably done something that's uh, less than ideal, and we probably did that uh, to, to sort of counteract something in technique that was less than ideal. Um, we, we shouldn't be side-spinning that golf ball a lot out of the bunkers. What I'll see the majority of people struggle with, uh, if they're a poor bunker player, for example, would be a lot more, uh, they're too shallow. Um, they're too afraid of that sand. They think if I've got to get this up and out of the bunker, uh, I've got to be shallow with it. And they, they don't really, I'm going to, I'm going to be technical just for a second. They don't understand the bottom vector of spin loft. So they don't understand the, the downward part of that path. Right. Um, being, being shallow is really just moving the low point farther back. So mm -hmm. they're going to bottom out early. So they either skip into it and bone it or they move too much sand. So now all of a sudden, now they take speed away because if they do make contact, it goes over the green. So they, they try all this crazy stuff when, in fact, they're generally too shallow uh, or for the wrong reason. So that's what I'll see out of bunker play most, most of the time. So draw versus fade, I think we're getting into a little bit more splitting hairs to try to get a guy to maybe, you know, change a degree here or there of, of what you're trying to get in delivery of the club. Sure. But my, the number one thing that I see out of struggling bunker players is the low points too far back. And it's generally in an effort to be shallow because they feel like that's the only way to go up with it. And that's, it's just, it's just not the case. You find a lot of times it also stems from like, even though they might feel like it's open, the club face doesn't have enough loft on it. And so they have to oh, yeah. naturally tilt back to try to help it up. A, a, a club golfer or someone struggling, uh, and I won't, I won't necessarily leave that one to a club golfer, a professional golfer struggling, mm -hmm. um, right. That intuition, what, what makes them good is man, if I'm struggling making contact, I need less loft. Well, the problem is we're already kind of on a downward spiral here of if you make contact with it, it already goes too, too far. 
Um, and then as you square that face up, you kind of get rid of more and more bounce. So now if I hit the sand early, it digs in a little bit. They make it so much harder by not playing enough loft and being too shallow. It's like the, it's like the death combo you can have in a bunker. Okay. So this kind of segues me into the next part, which is like, we're talking differences between full swing and short game. We mentioned this last time too, but I want to reiterate it a little bit. There are obviously some premium ball strikers on the PGA tour who have notably struggled around the greens the last like three to five years. Uh, would you equate part of that to just what makes them so good with their full swing makes them makes it a lot more challenging for them around the greens? There's there's no question. So I've personally dealt with a handful of those guys. Um, Victor Hovland's another one. Um, mm-hmm. you know, he's he's kind of the he's game. kind of the obvious I had yeah. in mind too. Yeah, he, yeah, and and I spent I spent a decent amount of time with Victor, uh, and then his is the coaching change he made. Joe Mayo, uh, Joe's colleague of mine, his previous coach Jeff Smith, colleague of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I spent a couple of days with Victor bef- the week before the masters and then at the masters, um, and then kind of talked to Joe and over the last month or two about his short game and he fits into basically exactly what we're talking about, like to a T, right. Just, just some concepts that needed to be cleaned up. He didn't understand, uh, the steepness was his friend. He, he was, he was struggling with a lot of that because he was too shallow. Um, and then he obviously de-lofts it and has a tremendous amount of flexion and lead wrist. So shallow in that is a rock star ball striking combo. Um, it's not the ideal combo for slowing it down out of a bunker or soft pitch shot. So I think his, his biggest improvement in the road that he's on now is understanding that he needs the steepness. He needs that bottom vector to be down. Um, and then all he has to do is have a little bit of loft on the club and he can slow this thing down and then he can give it speed. So you get into the good player mistake again. I I guess I won't necessarily separate this from a club golfer. The moment they start slowing down in those shots, bunker rough, whatever it is, that is another factor of struggle. So right. the three, the they're, three, they're keys, trying to they're trying to take ball speed out by taking club speed yeah, out. By, essentially. By slow, when they when they actually need to do it, they need to slow the ball down with more club head speed, and that's gonna mm-hmm. that, that sounds kind of contradictory. But if you've got enough, well, you're taking you're tacking smash away. Yeah, yeah. If I've got enough spin loft, I can get this ball to slip and go up, and that and that's where more speed at a particular spin loft will get it to slip, and our ball speed comes down. So it's like they need to understand, I need more loft, I need more down. So there's my spin loft getting a larger angle. And then if I'll apply enough speed to that, this thing will go up. So they kind of lose angle of attack and speed in fear of it going too far. But really, they need more of both of those things. They're almost just taking their technique and banditing it by cutting the speed out versus accomplishing the actual opposite. Correct. Correct. So, I mean, you, you get a talented player like Victor. It was like, and, and Joe's done a great job. He, I've talked to him a handful of times when they first kind of started, shared some video back and forth. And it's just like, and Joe's very knowledgeable about this as well. It's like, yeah, he, he just needed to understand a couple of those things a little bit better and then be pressed a little bit in practice to explore. And that's the biggest thing with these guys. If you hand them the right stuff and then kind of force them into exploration a little bit, the moment the first one they hit correctly, like that light bulb goes off, You've done, you're, you're done. Like you've, you've, you've given them everything that player is going to need. Now it's just sort of fostering the growth, but those guys are so talented. You give them the right information, force them to explore a little bit and find the right answer. It like, they become like 
animals. It's like they just they 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 want more. It's like they want to practice. They want to hit those shots. It's what makes them great. Is like the moment they do actually learn something new. It's like feed me Seymour. Like I I can't get enough of this. Right? It's actually fun it's, to watch those guys. It's, it's so funny because uh, whenever I whenever I uh, tell people about my experiences working with like obviously tour players and just like the elite of the elite. I always get the most confused face when I tell them I think it's easier to work with tour players than anybody else because, number one, I'm confident enough in my ability to be able to actually determine where the root of the problems are. But then once you do that, you're literally just like you said, right? You're just giving them an idea and then yeah. combining their knowledge with their skill and their spatial awareness and everything else. It's like everything just falls into place and you can just watch it happen. Yeah, they're talented for a reason. They just they need breadcrumbs. Like, mm -hmm. and if you can, if you can identify the problems and then the trick and you, and you know, this, the trick is identifying the problem and knowing what they need to do is not hard. No. Like you got guys that are generally not fighting really jacked up patterns. So it's not hard to sort of go, okay, your ball's doing this because X, Y, Z, we want our ball to do this. So X, Y, Z needs to be this. Okay. That, those are known. The trick is laying those breadcrumbs out to where they can kind of self-discover it. And because if, if there's a magic sentence to get them to understand you know, spatially what they were supposed to do, like you'd be done in a day. Like the instructor, you'd be, it'd be over, right? You'd give them a day of instruction. So it's a little bit more fostering. Like how do I, how do I move them the direct sort of supervise practice them the direction I need them to go until that light bulb goes off. And then you're done. That's that. As soon as they go, Oh shit. Yeah. I get it. You're done. Now I mean, just kind of foster that and help them practice. Put it this way. I give tour players probably feel suggestions the least of any of my players because yeah, it's I got like, no idea I'm, what they're feeling. Yeah, yeah. Like I'm, I'm not here yeah. to fucking tell them what to feel to do differently. I'm yeah. just telling them what's happening and where we need to start to trend towards and then let them figure out what feels best to get there. You know? Yeah. There's yeah. The, the tell them what to feel thing is the biggest cop out ever in golf instruction. All right. That's, that's, that's malpractice. Right, for a good player. Yeah, it's malpractice. One hundred percent. I'm not here to. And to be fair, if I force a feel on them, they might already go into it disliking the feel, and then then what? Then you lost them. Then you're done. Yeah, you stonewalled yourself at that point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good, good luck. The player ain't never fucking coming back to you. Yeah. Let's put it. You're that done. Way. Next coach. Yeah. yeah. Next coach. Yeah. 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 Okay. Okay. <laughs> so uh, I guess uh, one last question would be like, how would you define the difference then in that case between like skill work and, and technical work when you're working with these high level players? Do you have certain ways to differentiate them? And how would you describe that? Oh, yeah. So and putting as well, I, and almost probably more in putting, but the same application to wedges mm -hmm. is <clears throat> there's sort of a set of skills that go you kind of put in the technique bucket. Uh, or mechanical bucket of things they need to be able to do. And then there's this other bucket over here that is a little bit more uh, the playability and like the the athletic side of this. So like in wedges, I need them to be able to control angle of attack and dynamic loft. Basically 3D path and 3D face. I need them to be able to do that. If they're struggling to do that, that's a mechanical thing. We teach them how to do that properly. Once they can do that in sort of a static environment, it's like, yes, you know, no real targets. Like, can you hit normal ones? Yes. Can you hit high ones? Yeah. Can we hit runners? Yeah. Okay, great. So we can perform the physical task without, you know, other variables being involved. Okay. Now speed becomes the variable. It was like, I need to be able to control ball speeds through club head speeds and through varying spin loss. So now we start throwing the variables at them, putting different targets out there, farther away, closer over stuff. So you, the exploration of those physical skills through the change of ball speed and trajectory is 
is more performance. The mechanical side is the can I perform a task? Hmm. The performance side is can I manipulate that task accurately and repeatedly? So, yeah, we, we absolutely have blocks. Of we need to make sure that we are hitting our basic vanilla, whatever your favorite. We'll go back to that one. Whatever your club is that you pitch with, are we hitting our straight face, normal, mid-stance shots nicely? Like contact's good, control of distance is good, control of spin's good. Yes. Awesome. Can we manipulate that a little bit? Yep. I can, here's the loft changes, setup changes, go up. No problem with the strike. I can go down. No problem with strike. Awesome. Now we've got to apply speed to that. That's really just the progression. As simple as that is, that's the progression you go through. How often are you using launch monitors in your short game stuff? Or do you feel like you could, at this point in time, you can pick up a lot of these things with your eye sure, just no. looking at the 2D? It, um, myself, I've gotten pretty good at identifying some of those things. For the benefit, and I'll use it probably forward, and the proof to the player, mm -hmm. I still... I still measure a lot. I was at, I was in uh, Nashville two weekends ago with Ben Crane. Um, love that guy. For he's he's a nut. Love that guy. And we were chipping and pitching and had trackman out because his understanding of the angle of attack and why that thing, why angle of attack might get manipulated. Um, he he needed to see and have some feedback. Like I could see if he just wanted to believe me and go, Jeff, I'll do whatever you say. Just tell me what to do and I'll, and I'll do it. Yeah, we, we would have gotten to the same endpoint that day. But I think the long-term change is when he sees that and then he's going to practice later and recreate that and be able to make the connection between the mechanical things that we're doing, the movement pieces that we're changing, and then seeing how that changes impact and spin and his control of low point. But then it's measurable. So it's not just coming out of thin air and he got lucky that day or he needs me around all the time to tell him what to do. Once he understands that and can measure it himself, that's the power. It's like, yeah, I can, I could be 90% as effective from the technical side without it, but I'm, I'm 25% effective long-term with a high level player. If I'm not proving it to him. And to be fair, I don't think your choice of your word is that poor. I mean, at the end of the day, there needs to be like a, there needs to be almost like a, a secondary form of confirmation, right? That the player's on the right track. And if you can quantify that, the track man, so be it. Yeah. And some of look, I, like I've got some guys that are high level guys that don't want it. They're like, Hey man, just tell me what to do. Like, let's mm -hmm. video, like video it, show me kind of what the good ones are, what the bad ones are and I'll rock and roll. I believe you. I can clearly see the strike changes and, and things when I do it this way. It's like, okay, like if they're all in and they kind of want to be blind to it, then, you know, that's sort of their prerogative and they're successful at it. You don't necessarily force it down them. But if you got a guy that, that likes information and likes knowing kind of at least a little bit of what's going on, I mean, it's imperative that they that they know that you aren't just making shit up. <laughs> There's trust right. on both sides. So that when they are in a tournament and they don't have their track man out and they send you a video, you don't have to prove to them that you're writing and be like, hey, man, like, remember X, Y, Z? Here's your video. Remember how these things, they're like, oh, yep, see it. No problem. Got it. Thanks, coach. And they can go on instead of having to like regain that trust sometimes. Like, yeah, man, like I, everything I say to you, we will measure and I can prove. I can make a correlation between what I'm asking you to do and measurable change. And I think once if you operate that way as a coach, it's just so much easier the farther you go down that road to communicate. And that's always the key in coaching is how effective at communicating can I be. Oh, if you lost them with the communication, again, they're done, right? So, yeah.
Nice. Okay, dude, I want to ask you one last question and then I will let you be on your nice long drive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is a, a personal one for you. What do you dislike right now about the golf industry? If you can change one thing, what would what would that be? Who one thing? Oh wow! Okay, uh, I mean, you can name me three if you want, dude. Lay, lay the. I know, I know, we can talk like off the record about a ton of shit, but like, what would you? Pro I guess what would well, be your right, top let me, three? Let me, let me ask, let me ask a sort of more of a a to get a more pointed question. Golf yeah. industry in the sense of like the game of golf, or industry in the sense of our like our specific coaching industry. Like, give okay, me a how about this? How about this? Give me one for just the actual professional side of golf, and then give me a one for the instruction side. Okay, um, right now, and I think this is obviously you know a year old now at this point. I I want to see this this whole uh, what I've called now a soap opera between Live and PGA Tour. I want to see that over. I think they're damaging their products. Um, I think the people that are losing here are the players. I think the people that lose are the fans when the environment is that they could both win. I think you've just got a pissing contest that I want to see in. Because if we go two, three years down the road, like they're through all the legal bullshit, they've sorted this out, boom, and golf is better for it because there's you, more you think the drama is over part. in a few years like it'll just regulate I, I, yeah, itself I, off. i think once i think once they get through this legal nonsense it's still looming um i think that starts at the beginning of 2024 once they get through this and realize that it's all bs it's just like everything else going on it's like there's no there there with all this and be done with it then go on and get it sorted out uh, just from my side of it i hate dealing with it it's like you go out on the pj tour and you get asked a thousand questions about live you go on live Nobody really seems to care what PGA Tour is doing <laughs> because right. they're all, so it's it's like I'm you're in the soap opera that I want to see in. I, I think the tour's got to do a better job of managing sort of uh, competitive space. Uh, I think you know to to give Monahan credit, you know through COVID, rock star through everything else. Like dude, he he ran that thing. Golf was the beacon for normalcy, crushed it. Um, we I, I've talked to him countless times. Great conversations, like the dude. When the environment became competitive because he was the only game in town, I think some balls got dropped. Can't pin it all on him. You, you don't really know all the nuts and bolts of what's going on. The tour, I will say, not necessarily Jay, uh, has got to get this figured out. And and the player you, you hear behind again behind closed doors, the players are a lot of them are unhappy. Um, we talk to a lot of the marquee guys. I mean, we still practice uh, at the places where they practice. So. Emmett's Grove, Medalist, Bears Club, still see, you know, the marquee guys that the media likes to, you know, the, those are the PGA Tour spokespeople. Um, behind closed doors, man, they're normal. They don't care. Like, they've got to obviously, you know, do their media stuff, but they don't care who's playing where. They just want to play against the best players. So that that whole soap opera, I'm just ready to get see cleaned up. Uh, I, I, think, I think golf will be in a better space once all that's done. Um, on the instruction side, um, you know, I'm, I, I guess I'm fortunate that I don't, I'm not in it every day in terms of our industry. Uh, I kind of separated that. I kind of took space away from, you know, all the social media stuff and everything online. Like I just, I, I, I didn't have time for it. It wasn't necessarily that I didn't want to do it. It's just the time mm -hmm. allocation. I couldn't spend energy and time there to be, to, to really give it, what it would deserve to be successful. So I've, I feel like I've kind of been out of the industry for a little while, uh, like, or participating in the industry with, you know, talking to people and going on. 
I I just love when the lists come out still. That's always my favorite because you just watch you just watch people you know break down because they're not on the list and then 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 you see the list just perpetuate the people that have been on there forever and it's like you just it's hilarious like trying trying to rank all this stuff is actually quite funny um you you think the lists are a little like political and nonsense uh i'd say almost all nonsense yeah it's hilarious the the, the people making the list don't even know who's teaching (laughs) it's it's literally you got you got to fill out your application and then hope other teachers vote on it and then it's yeah it's it's a who's who at the lunch table in middle school I mean, it's a joke. Well, especially the top 50 <laughs> lists that like the top 30 of them haven't changed in like, what, 40 years? That, well, that, that's what I mean. It's like, and then you see, like, and then you see all these awards get given out. It's like, hey, I'm, I'm all for people getting recognition for, for doing a good job. You know, don't get me wrong there. And a lot of those guys on the list deserve some amount of recognition. I just think the lists are silly. Uh, I think, also, the key, I think the key word there is some of, of the recognition. Some of them deserve recognition. Yeah. And then you see them like switch places or like somebody, it's like, oh, Okay, so did this person become less good of a teacher than this person at some point? Like, because we're going to rank them, there's there's an objective number to that. Like, how did he go? How did he go from seventh to sixth this year? Yeah, did he get dumber? Like, did he did he like did drinking make him lose some of his memory of some of his ideas? Like, who knows? So I just that whole conversation always cracks me up. That's good. I like that. That's funny. Um, also, yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, I guess there's definitely some element of nonsense to the whole like political side, I guess, especially if you dive into the minutia of like the numbers of like, how are you flopping from eight to four to six the next year? Like what's happening? What did you do this year or in the last two years that made you four people better? (laughs) (laughs) That's good. That's good. So, uh, I guess, uh, just speak a little bit to the future. What's the game plan for the summer? Are you going to be traveling a lot? Are you, I know you mentioned obviously North Carolina, but like, are you going to be traveling still to a lot of tour events, just the majors? Like what's the, what's the goal? Yeah, I'll be, I'll, I'll do every live event in the States. Um, I'll do all the majors and then I'll hit a handful of the PGA tour events in the middle. Um, and then I'll be. In North Carolina, I'm not on the road this summer, so it's. I had a little bit of downtime this winter, which was nice. You know, PJ Tour was down for a little bit. Live was off. Uh, I I don't teach out of a club down in Florida, so it's sort of my time to to have off. So April again, end of end of March, beginning of April was sort of you know getting it back in gear. Live was rocking and rolling. You know, and then we get into uh, the Masters. You know, live guys are overseas for two weeks, and then but I'm going to be in Charlotte next week. And then lives and you got Tulsa. So I mean, it's it's full bore now. So this summer is is on the road, you know, back in the mountains on the weekends, teaching up there a little bit and seeing some of the guys that you know need some work in their off weeks. So it's I got I got a solid seven months in front of me. That's uh, probably more work than I want to do, but I guess I got to work if I'm going to take a few months off in the winter. You might you might take the reins <laughs> off me from this summer to being busier. <laughs> no, don't want them. you might not have a choice dude you might not have a fucking choice (laughs) shit dude well that was fun that was great 